0: Welcome to The Wired Wick, demystifying tech law trends and educating about law in tomorrow's society. Hello and welcome back to The Wired Wig. To start off with, thank you to everyone who attended our first blind networking session last week. Anna and I really loved meeting a few of you and we hope you loved the event too. We're going to be hosting a few more events like this in the future and we'll be sharing when those events happen on our social pages. For the episode today, I was joined by Alex Glassbrook who is a barrister at Temple Garden Chambers where he is a transport law specialist. We discussed the regulation around automated vehicles and the use of AI, how regulation may change, whether we can be inspired by the regulatory change from horse and cart to the car, and the environmental impacts of AVs. As always, we close with some advice for anyone looking to work in the industry. One thing about technology law is that it's changing all the time. So you would think by recording an episode only two weeks before its release date that this wouldn't happen. Well, It does. So only a week after recording this episode in the middle of April, the Automated Electric Vehicles Act 2018 was actually brought into force. So Alex does refer to this act in this podcast and he says it's not in force yet, which of course is not the case now because time has moved forward. And there will also be a list of automated vehicles which the act will apply to and this will be released by the Secretary of State. It hasn't been released yet, yet, but again. I'm saying this on the 30th of April 2021. So maybe you're listening to this in two weeks time. And it has been released. So just keep that in mind. So Alex, welcome to the Wired Wig podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So maybe to start off, what interested you about the intersection between technology and the law? And how did you find yourself specialising in this space?
1: Well, that's an excellent question. I think from a personal perspective, I've always been very interested in transport. I mean, I'm a, I'm a driver and a pedestrian, but I'm also a cyclist. And I, I, so I live in a city in, in London, which has seen a lot of transformation over the last, well, 20 years or so. As somebody who drives, walks, uses all forms of public transport and cycles in normal times, every day of the week to work. I, I've always been fascinated by the behavioural part of transport and what people use as transport, how they get around, how they behave in in and around different forms of transport. In cycling, in, in particular in London, was transformed, I think, mainly by the London Olympics, actually. And in my time of cycling's work, that's changed the road. So uh, you go from cycling on very, very busy roads that are full of cars and lorries with no partition and no cycle lanes to speak of, to a city that is, you know, still has a lot to do, is very well-equipped for other road users. Then, of course, you have the effects on other road users. You know, if you're taking away pavement space, the cycle lanes you know what effect does that have on buses on taxis on people who need to cross the pavements yes. and have time to do so so there's a whole infrastructure and a whole ecosystem there. as a lawyer it's always interested me because unfortunately particularly in my area of practice which is serious personal injury work which causes catastrophic injury life-changing injury overwhelmingly the largest cause of the cases that I see is road traffic accidents mm-hmm. and, and so anything that can be done to reduce the number of injuries and the severity of injuries can only be a good thing and finally of course there's the environmental side which is pressing and has new legislative force I think internationally and domestically so there are all the all these factors coming in and the, the only last point is that my my family background is that my grandfather on my dad's side worked in the motor factories. So my dad's family are all from Birmingham, which is uh, in the Midlands, is, is the core of the British motor industry historically. It's mm-hmm. also the core of the British bicycle manufacturing industry. Yeah. And, it, and it's now where the test beds are growing and the expertise in, in automated systems. So there's a bit of a family tie as well
0: interesting and like you said your your job relates to quite a few different areas of law and as you were talking about the area i was thinking oh there's criminal law there there's tort law there as well and like you were saying with personal injury as well associated with uh, cars on the road and bikes on the road i suppose that's where having automated vehicles could be something that could pe- perhaps reduce that so maybe we could talk a bit about automated vehicles and how they rely on ai and maybe a bit about like what is an automated vehicle and how does ai come into play when we're looking at that technology. Yeah,
1: there's an anxiety, I think, uh, understandably about, and there are real problems in how one adjudicates responsibility for a system that's not human, but is programmed and is using computer hardware, sensors, processing units, et cetera, and software to make decisions. And there's an anxiety about how one adjudicates responsibility for that. now part of that question might already have been answered because there's a statute in the uk which is the automated electric vehicles act part one of which deals with first liability and essentially what it does is subject to some exceptions it makes the motor insurer the compensator where an accident is at least partly caused by an automated vehicle Okay. So what it does is it brings automated vehicles into our existing system of tort liability plucked, backed up by insurance. That goes some way, I think, to reassuring people that, that when these vehicles appear, that, that, and that Act, which is not yet in force, but is ready to be brought into force when they do appear, that that part of the equation is dealt with. But there are, of course, remaining difficulties because uh, deciding whether an accident has been at least partly caused by an automated vehicle when driving itself is something that the courts are going to have to decide. And a, a great uh, accidents happen in a variety of ways, but one type of accident which has tended to be the sort of accident that leads to law reform
0: mm-hmm. is a multi-vehicle
1: accident, where there are a number of vehicles and therefore a number of drivers involved. And that was the law, that was the factual situation that that was to a great extent responsible for the law of contribution being reformed in the 1930s by the Law Revision Committee, which was the precursor to the Law Commission. Mm -hmm. Um, So cars have always caused the law to stretch. Yes. So it's a thorny and difficult area. And the proposal is that There's a degree of borrowing practice from high-risk industries such as pharmaceuticals, nuclear, aviation, maritime, and change the culture of how we legislate road traffic.
0: And how far away are we at the moment from getting law with the problems you were just mentioning as well? So, for example, with the explainability of AI decisions as well, considering the criminal liability, if we're going to be importing principles from other areas of the law when when do we think that this is actually going to be something that we'll really see say for example there is an accident involving two automated vehicles then what is that actually going to be regulated by
1: well at the moment the 2018 act is not yet in force section one of the act empowers the secretary of state for transport to make a list of automated vehicles And in fact, the making of that list, the starting of that list would essentially trigger the Act. So as soon as the first vehicle is categorised as automated by the Secretary of State for Transport, that will greenlight the Act and it will have to come into effect at that stage. It's not happened yet. It could happen very soon, though, because... At the moment, the technology which is provoking the question, and the Department of Transport closed its own consultation on this not long ago, is called automated lane keeping, or the ALKS system, automated lane keeping system. And that's otherwise referred to as traffic jam chauffeur. Mm. And that's broadly a description of what it does. It's used on motorways, and it's a very advanced cruise control. Mm -hmm. that will drive the car at low speeds in that particular situation on the motorway. In other words, there's traffic congestion. Now, there's a difficult question of construction about ALKS because when the Automated Electric Vehicles Act was enacted, a very particular definition was attached to the phrase driving itself. Mm -hmm. An automated vehicle is a vehicle that can drive itself. But crucially, also one that does not need to be monitored by an individual, and that phrase was added to the act. So we in the act has royal assent. So that 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 phrase is in the act and on the statute. And of course, the question arises: Well, surely ALKS has to be monitored by the driver. They can't just. Yes. Let go of the steering wheel, read a book, read their emails, you know, watch a movie. So that that question is probably going to be the first one to be answered. And, and it's binary. One one of two things will happen. Either that is listed as an automated vehicle type of function, in which case the act comes into effect. Yes. And if there's an accident involving ALKS, then anybody injured by by that fault, by that cause, will have the direct remedy against the insurer. If the answer is the other way, then we're still in the foggier world of negligence.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And
1: it will have to be judges who start deciding questions that don't just involve human driving, but involve these driver assistance systems. Yes, And that and that, that's an area that our that law at the moment really does not spell out much guidance on.
0: And I can imagine there being a lot of different elements having to be considered there. So the explainability of why that accident has happened and the algorithmic basis behind that. And I know we've spoke about it before recording today, but the sort of context that that has actually happened in and when you're actually dealing with personal injury cases, is that something that is typically requested from your clients that they want to have the explanation if it has happened between to automated vehicles? Or is that still the future that I suppose in the UK, is that actually happening yet, that we're having and seeing accidents between automated vehicles? Or is this still quite far off?
1: Well, we don't, as a matter of law, we don't yet have automated vehicles operating. Well, we do Mm -hmm. advance cars with advanced driver assistance
0: system. Yes.
1: And in fact, ALKS, depending on what the Secretary of State's decision is, might, might be one of those systems. In fact, if you, if, I mean, so dialing back in, in history, I mean, driver assistance systems, in one sense, have existed for quite some time. I mean, probably the first and most famous is cruise control, yes. which was invented in the 1950s, but came into uh, manufacture as a standard feature, particularly in the US in the 1970s. And the reason it became so popular in the 70s as a mass-use device was in fact because of fuel shortages. So cruise control, which is usually operated by a switch in the car, uh, which yields control of speed to the vehicle, subject to an override by the driver, that's been in use for quite some time. Its use has tended to be dealt with on the basis of reasonableness in terms of negligence cases. One of the curiosities of where we are is that there are lots of those sorts of assistive devices which have actually rather been permitted and allowed and have never really generated any regulatory anxieties. There's just been a sort of incremental rise in these technologies. I think what has changed over the last few years, it's really the AI third age, it's machine learning, it's AlphaGo and AlphaZero, and this the the visible capabilities of AI have risen to such an extent over such a relatively recent period of time that one of the effects of this has been to make autonomous driving go from being perceived as fantasy to being recognised as as a possible reality. Mm -hmm. So I think we're we're, we're now at this stage of, of... legally starting to worry about where the responsibility would lie. I think part of the answer to your question is that in the normal run of conventional cases, if there is an accident, there will be a conversation between uh, legal teams and their client driver as to what their recollection is of what happened. But of course, in any case, memory is not a perfect record. And so that conversation is never going to yield a set of certain answers. But even in those cases where you have imagery and even telematics information from from the vehicle, as well as recollection, you are always going to encounter a degree of contradiction. And there's always going to be questions that the hard evidence does not resolve, the documentary evidence does not resolve. And then you get into the, this very interesting area, which is how the courts deal with recollection. And that's a fascinating area. And, and there's one, there's a particular judgment by Sir Andrew Leggert, as he then was, now a justice of the Supreme Court in, in the UK, and called Guestman in 2013, mm-hmm. which is a commercial case, really about construction of contracts. But the opening section about it, which is called Evidence Based on Recollection, is is absolutely essential reading for any practising trial lawyer. And it's to do with evidence based upon recollection and its reliability.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yes. And how memory reconstructs itself. So there's that neurological aspect to it as well. So even in a regular case, I say a regular case, even in, let me say, a a multi-vehicle accident case there's a there's a whole wealth of subtlety in the evidence even in a case where there's a lot of telematics evidence and so those those questions are really only resolved by one thing and that's an objective approach to the evidence and an objective approach to the evidence in many cases human drivers are completely unable to explain why they did something mm-hmm. in a moment and so opacity is a problem with black box evidence, yes. is actually something, it's a feature it has in common with human evidence, in fact. But it's, but the Guestman case, I think, is part of the key to open open this area up, actually. So I'd, I'd thoroughly recommend it.
0: Yes, absolutely. And what do you think about maybe if, in, in the future, more people were using automated vehicles, wouldn't that perhaps remove this, sort of subjectivity around what happened and who had the responsibility because maybe at this point we have black box algorithms but what if we got to the point where we had a bit of a better idea what was actually happening or is that sort of like a far-off dream and that's not really going to happen?
1: Well I think that it's a very sensible and constructive point. And I think actually it, it, it's one of, one of the thoughts behind the Law Commission's proposal of mm-hmm. having a safety agency and also having monitoring of automated vehicles in, in their use. So there's a sort of ongoing learning because, of course, the courts aren't really the arena in which those lessons are being learned. And, and in a way, that's not the court's role. The the court's role is is to apply the laws equally uh, to everybody and and, and make sure that liabilities, civil or criminal, are are properly applied and are fairly applied. And and this is why I think the Law Commission has has grasped a a really central point here, Mm -hmm. that, that, that the ability of these vehicles to record data provides contemporaneous evidence which, even if it doesn't present an entire picture of what happened, is such a a, a rich tool to yes. provide safety in other situations and avoid that sort of uh, situation occurring again. And that's really got to mean it got to mean a, a safety regulator. One of the points that, that we made, particularly through the work of Lucy mccormick in our response for the Bar Council, it, is that that has to be a very well resourced regulator. I mean, it it can't be regulated that this is is just buried in cases and suffers a backlog because it has insufficient resources. That's a a serious public safety role, and it has to be properly resourced. But I, I think your point is a very good one. Another point, though, is, of course, for quite some time, we're going to have a mix of vehicles that's going to be really quite profound because vehicles have a long life. And there's quite, I mean, aside from tailpipe emissions, there is quite a good argument for vehicles not having a relatively long life and, and, and being usable. But it does mean uh, that there isn't going to be a moment where every vehicle is electric or there isn't going to be a moment or at least any time soon, where every vehicle is automated. The example I've always used is there will always be somebody riding a horse or riding a bicycle. But the horse example, it tends to be quite a good one because you can come across somebody riding a horse, I say unexpectedly, but you can come across them very suddenly, both in the city as well as in the countryside. Yes. Of course, in you know, mounted police officers are a common sight in many cities and towns across the world. There is this question about whether driving is actually capable of entire automation, okay. or whether that is an aspiration, or is it capable of it in every location,
0: mm-hmm. or is
1: it something that at least initially would have to be limited to certain locations which appears to be the thinking behind automated lane keeping.
0: Yes and I also actually wanted to ask when we were transitioning from horses and carts and actually moving to cars and cars how we know them today how did the law adjust at that time when we had when we saw this transformation in technology and is there other lessons to learn from then because it really feels that we are having this transformation again in, how everything...
1: in, very, in very broad terms, uh, the law in the United Kingdom started out by being very, very opposed to road yep. traffic. Yep. You have to understand a bit of the factual background to see how that happened. What, what happened was, in the 1860s, or, or in a period up to the 1860s, the first type of motorised road, tra- road transport wasn't the motor car with an internal combustion engine, it was steam-powered locomotives.
0: Okay, of course, yes.
1: And they were huge things. And if you, to imagine them, it, it, imagine a, a sort of old-style way of uh, flattening tarmac mm-hmm. on a road. Okay. It's huge metal rollers in a very, very big machine that's powered by steam. And the way the law reacted to that was to say, yes, these devices can be used, But it made so many restrictions in relation to those vehicles that it became practically impossible for them to be used. And the one restriction that's remembered particularly is that they had to be limited in speed. And the way that this was done was that a man carrying a red flag would walk in front of these steam locomotives and they had to stay behind him. And so the act that brought in those restrictions, became known as the Red Ma- the Red Flag Act mm. in, 19- in 1865. So that's the first approach. The first approach was essentially to have a de facto ban by making them so difficult to use the, that they didn't. And the reasoning, it is said, the reason for that is because the owners of the roads, the toll road, were so appalled by these huge vehicles breaking up their road surfaces and causing them expense that they lobbied the politicians to effectively so that was the red flag act after 1865 smaller cars were developed and actually electric cars were part of that But, but the technology that won the day was the internal combustion engine and as I said earlier on, the first there's there's argument about which one was the first. The Benz car of 1884 is generally thought to be acknowledged as, as the first. So these things were much cheaper. So they ran on fuel. They were very light. They were fast. They didn't damage the road in the same way. And so the public debate switched. And suddenly, people wanted to be able to use them. Mm-hmm. And this resulted in a second Locomotive Act in 1896, which reversed the Red Flag Act and repealed it. And so from 1896 in the UK, you have uh, a progression of Motor Vehicle and Road Traffic Acts. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the major reform after that is 1930, when driving tests and compulsory insurance, the Highway Code, are introduced. And that's essentially the modern shape of our law. And, and, and so the shape of our road transport law is still as we have, is it, essentially the 1930 version. Okay. And, and, and in fact, the name of the act is the same. We have the Road Traffic Act 1988 as amended by the 91 Act and, and, and others. Uh, that, that's still the shape of our law. So it's you go from a very strict approach to a U-turn, so to speak, to a very permissive approach. Mm. so when you're looking at things like micro mobility now and e-scooters which yes, are also incidentally nothing new it, e-scooters were were around about 100 years ago in a in a petrol and briefly in a, a battery form but when you're looking about these things that are considered a nuisance it's sometimes helpful to think back to steam locomotives and think well that's exactly how they were regarded but I, I think we're in we're at a Transformation stage again. Things things are things are about to change fundamentally again.
0: So, from the environmental law perspective, what are the types of issues that we also need to contend with when it comes to AVs?
1: I mean, I'm just starting to grapple with this actually. I mean, I'm in the process of writing my third book on the topic. Of course, environmental law has always been part of this picture because more electric vehicles means that you're essentially producing a vehicle that feels much more like a computer than it does a vehicle as you know it. But these vehicles, I think, have been seen fairly as part of the environmental cure for tailpipe emissions. Mm -hmm. But of course, it's not to say that they're without environmental effects, because of course they are. Because firstly, in the manufacture stage, the components include rare metals and include quite toxic materials for battery manufacturing, battery recycling. So there's that aspect. I mean, at the moment, of course, we're we're, we're seeing international chip shortage. So, you know, those factors come into this, which means there's a geopolitical side, which particularly around rare metals. And so there are those environmental factors that are specific to the vehicles. There are also environmental factors in the sense of how you design the spaces in which the vehicles operate. You know, what effect does it have on highways? What effect does it have upon use of public space on on and around roads and parking resources and all these kinds of things? And of course, one of the understandable anxieties about these vehicles is that they might not reduce the number of vehicles that are on the roads. Yes. There are clearly efforts to use connectivity as a tool to allow not just sharing of vehicles, but also efficiency of journeys and to introduce a sort of, you know, in my inexpert summary, to introduce sort of ride sharing into vehicle ownership. Mm -hmm. But they don't have zero effects. How those are going to be legislated for is significant. And obviously international agreement is part of that, particularly in the manufacturing stage. But I, I think it's a, it's an aspect of this not to be overlooked. And it, in, in, it introduces that sort of public environmental aspect to, to regulating.
0: Yes. And it's tricky from a policy perspective as well, how we're we going to balance that to still incentivize people to actually move in this way towards automated vehicles and electric yeah. cars as well. Whereas on the other side, we do have the downsides of actually utilizing these technologies more because it's not like they don't have as you said any environmental impact so it's making sure that we incentivize it but also acknowledge that the cost is somewhere along the line and who actually aids
1: uh, there was a very very good report published by the uk government not as a not as a statement of policy but mm-hmm. as an exploration of these all of these issues i think it was in 2018 it's called the future of mobility report and it many People contributed to it, including the uh, Centre for Transportation Studies at Imperial College, for whom I've uh, uh, done some lecturing. And it's a very, very thoughtful piece of work. And it mm-hmm. acknowledges a whole range of effects, including this geopolitical effect and, and the rare metals factor. So just before we came on, it's very interesting that the French government have legislated against, it appears to ban domestic flights. Oh, OK there is a a railway a rail alternative okay which is very interesting and it's not road transport but that's i mean if that that, that shows the level of transformation in regulation that's that's required
0: and do you have any other sort of predictions for the next maybe five to ten years that you think will happen with the legislation and people's attitudes and habits
1: Towards- yes, I mean, I'm not a technologist, and I, I think ultimately all of these points are led by the technology. I, th- I think it depends what the technology can achieve. I think from, from what I can see in relation to legislation and policy making, I think the UK has made a good start because it very quickly in 2015 established a specialist unit within the Department of Transport and uh, Department for Business Enterprise, industry and skills, so which is called the Centre for Connected and Autonomous Vehicles,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, or CCAV, as, it, as it's known. And, and CCAV very quickly commissioned the Law Commission to deal uh, in, a, in a typically intensive and thoughtful way with the legal problems. And that was a three-year programme. And we're now in the last year, effectively, of that three-year programme on, on law reform. And And it needed a consultation of that scale. And importantly, it needed a consultation that had that time, that had that three years, because there were a lot of ideas that needed to gestate. And of course, you know, by the time, well, I mean, the the Brexit referendum had happened before that consultation started, but between the first report and the third report, and in fact, it was from recollection, I, I think, days or weeks after the third report, that the trade agreement was signed. So the position in relation to the law of vehicle specifications and insurance changed in a fundamental way between the first report and, and just after the third, during the current consultation. So, which is not to say that British vehicle law isn't international. It is international in one sense. It's just that it's United Nations international now. So it's Unice law that, of course, is more permissive. Uh, I mean, it must be uh, from your perspective, Annabel, because I see there's recent announcement from Ministry of Culture, I think, here about possible reconsideration of GDPRs,
0: mm-hmm. this
1: British data protection law. So, I mean, that's another. Yes. That's another, another sign of change. But of course, I, I suppose part of the issue is that if you're making individual trade agreements, you you, you have to assure everybody of a high standard of cybersecurity or of manufacturing exactly. or whatever it is. So there might well be a commercial force that brings yes. about the
0: Because I suppose that's the other thing. It's the transfers of data between all these different countries as well depending where the car is actually manufactured where the software has been created what servers it's interacting with and how the technology works that's where the data protection law is going to come in and how it's going to evolve over time yes. and one
1: area that we the, the law commission deals with at the end of the current consultation which we responded on as well it, it is this question of storage of vehicle data of the dSA data mm-hmm. you know whose responsibility is it to store that yes I I don't know whether a manufacturer or insurer will offer data storage as part of a package, but that's an awful lot of data. I mean, I I remember seeing a very interesting lecture at a conference I spoke at uh, a few years ago about, and I forget what the figure was in terabytes, as to the amount of data that was generated by a Tesla 3, and it was
0: a lot Yes. Because,
1: of course, there are eight or so cameras on it. And that's before you even get data and metadata that's in the view. And that's just the images. The practicalities of, of data storage and, and the facts upon which the law will depend are not settled.
0: What advice would you give to future lawyers and perhaps aspiring barristers as well? Because I think actually becoming a barrister is still less usual than becoming a solicitor who are looking to get into technology law.
1: First of all, I think anybody contemplating coming into legal practice at the moment who has any sort of interest in technology it is coming at exactly the right time. It, it's, it, it, I mean, even in the particular context, I deal with the road transport, it's a time of enormous change. I know what my oldest son would say, who, who's a who's a budding computer scientist, he would say, learn how to code, which I think is very good advice. And I I my experience of writing programs in computer languages was sort of back in the 1980s. And, you know, so I have a little bit of it, but I do need to bring my coding skills up to, up to par. So I know that's what he would say. And mm-hmm. I've always, I've also heard it said, and again, I think this is very powerful advice that anybody legislating or taking a policymaking role in this needs to educate themselves about coding. And what AI actually means, there are some excellent sources. There's a particularly excellent book by Michael Waldrich who's the head of computer science, Oxford University, which is called, I think, The Rise of Conscious Machines. His book about AI is excellent. The book, I confess by a friend of mine, but he became a friend through this book, uh, called Rage Inside the Machine by Robert Elliott Smith, Mm -hmm. which is uh, a Bloomsbury book from 2019, which is about algorithmic bias. And I think that is absolutely essential Reading And again, Rob Elliott Smith's uh, very sound advice, I think repeated from others, is a very good way to think of artificial intelligence is whenever one hears the phrase artificial intelligence, substitute the phrase computer program. Yes. Mm -hmm. That will give you a much less mystified version of it. The other book I'd recommend is uh, Robot Rules by Jacob Turner, who's Mm -hmm. who's a British barrister, uh, a friend. but a a friend through his writing, which is really a wholesale review of regulation, AI, law, in in British law. Jacob is extremely expert and writes beautifully. Speak to a lot of non-lawyers. Speak to computer scientists and speak to engineers. I I think it's a multidisciplinary conversation, and it has to be a multidisciplinary conversation, you know, and not just lawyers and engineers, police, insurers, Users
0: of highways and pavements. Alex, thank you so much for your time today in recording for the Wide Wig. I really enjoyed com- talking to you as well. And I feel like we, we discussed a lot of different topics, including the history as well. Thank you so much, Ramikon. I'm Annabelle Pemberton, and you have just listened to the Wide Wig podcast, available on Spotify, iTunes, and Apple Podcasts.